three on the way. Good! And Garland spins down the lane and laid it in. This crowd has erupted. Welcome to Fear the Fro, a podcast covering the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA with the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Figure out a way to stop it. Listen and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Here it is, my favorite show. And now, your host. His name is Bob Schmidt. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. I am Bob Schmidt, a second edition of this preseason, and unfortunately, for all of us Cleveland Cavalier fans, the outcome was the same, but the score really doesn't matter, as we've said before. I especially felt that way today because, in a lot of ways, the game felt over very early on as the Cavs came out of the gate. Jared Allen came out of the gate on fire, but most of the rest of the Cavaliers came out ice cold, especially Dean Wade and Donovan Mitchell. First quarter, 0 for 4 for Wade, 0 for 3 for Mitchell, three turnovers for Mitchell right out of the gate. The, the Sixers were very aggressive on defense. Melton, a very aggressive defender. P.J. Tucker, a very aggressive defender. And there was, a uh, defender rather, and there was a lot of, you know, slapping at the ball when they tried to drive the lane. And without love out there with just Jared Allen and with Dean Wade off to such a rough start, the lane obviously got clogged. It wasn't wide open by any means. And you saw a lot of turnovers from both these guys as Garland and Mitchell together accounted for five turnovers in the first quarter. But it wasn't all negative. Right off the bat, I guess the positives would be that Jared Allen was phenomenal. He had nine points and four boards to start the game. Finished with a double-double, 19 points, 12 rebounds. Now the starters got multiple quarters of work this game as opposed to the previous game, where they shut him down at halftime. But this time around, at least into the second half, we got to see roughly a quarter of extra time from all of those guys. Levert got nine minutes in the third. Jared Allen got a full 12 minutes. Mitchell and Garland played most of the third quarter. Garland played the whole third quarter. And then we turned it over to the backups. But what we did see was a whole lot of Isaiah Mobley. A couple of surprising developments from this game that I would not have expected. Now, Kevin Love was shut down this game. And they said, Bickerstaff said, that he could have played if it was the regular season. But they're just trying to manage the workload. So, instead of the starting lineup we saw last time, which featured Levert at the three and Kevin Love at the four. We got both Dean Wade and Levert, two guys who have been positioned as potential rivals for playing time when the regular season comes around. They started alongside one another in the front court, and early and often, Levert was driving and feeding Dean Wade for looks. And unfortunately, they were not falling in the first quarter, but just out of the gate, aside from Jared Allen, who was on a tear with no Joel Embiid. He didn't play tonight. That is a small front court. With Paul Reed manning a lot of the minutes, with P.J. Tucker sliding over to center, they started the game with P.J. Tucker at center, who's giving up a good six inches to Jared Allen and a whole lot of pounds. And despite playing bigger than his size, as soon as I saw that starting lineup, I was confident that Jared Allen was not going to repeat any of the problems that he had in Game 1 versus the 76ers. Now, unfortunately, Tyrese Maxey, again, was on fire to start this game. Last game, 21 points in the first half. This game, 15 
of his 19 points came in the first quarter. He was perfect from the line, he was perfect from three, and he made four of his six buckets from the field. All of this without a single turnover. So without Embiid, with Embiid, Tyrese Maxey has ascended, at least in this preseason, to the clear option 1A. Tobias Harris, pretty quiet to start the game. He missed all of his shots in the first quarter, 0 for 3 from three-point land. But at the end of the game, the Sixers did come away with a win. But I I don't want to dwell on the overall arc of the game. There were some things which certainly will never lead to victory. One of those things, of course, being that the Cavaliers shot 5 for 21 from three-point land. You cannot miss that many looks. That's 24%. That's brutal. But also the turnovers. 16 turnovers in a preseason game is a ton. Five turnovers from Garland, four turnovers from Mitchell. It just was sloppy in the first half. Now, the second half, I really did feel like what we got to see was as Okoro started to log more minutes, the defensive intensity ratcheted up. And we got to see that from, you know, Diakite came in. He gave good minutes again. Another strong showing from him, three for three from the field, eight points, a block, a steal, some rebounds. If anything came away from this game, these were my takeaways. One, I think Levert gave himself some separation in the battle for the small forward position. Coming into preseason, there was a discussion, of course. Levert was the favorite, but with the extension to Dean Wade, with the ascension of Isaac Okoro possibly making a third-year leap, and then you had the outside dark horse guys like Osman and Stevens. I think we can walk away from this second preseason game and say there may be a Tier 1, which is, you know, if you want to put Wade and Okoro and Levert all in that first tier of contenders for the small forward, the second tier is clearly Osman and Stevens because they got mop-up minutes tonight. Stevens didn't even get into the game before Isaiah Mobley, who logged quite a few minutes over the course of the game, got almost 18 minutes tonight. And I didn't think he was particularly good, but seven rebounds, that's, I mean, that was good for second on the team, I suppose. Albeit, he didn't score very effectively. And Stevens, really, I would have liked to see a longer run from him because especially Dean Wade went down in this game with a a tweaked ankle early in the third and that was the end of the night for him so he finished the game with eight points seven rebounds but not a particularly efficient showing his defense was okay his shooting of course abysmal to begin the game and it it looked noticeably better as the game went on I suppose but then it would almost have to now Levert 13 points three rebounds three assists five for nine from the field but what I liked most about him was his pace his desire to find others. I mean, they left a lot of assists on the board. Basically, the entire start of the first quarter was him getting into the middle of the lane and throwing it out to Dean Wade for looks, which unfortunately were not falling, or Mitchell that were not falling. Now, Mitchell, he ratcheted up the defense, had quite the highlight block in the second half, had some good plays, had a defensive rebound that he just ripped out of the hands of the other team. So they they increased their intensity, and I thought a lot of that could be directly linked to when Okoro came in, and they tried to put him on Maxi to slow him, and they certainly had success in that way because Maxi finished with 19 points, but as I said earlier, 15 of those came in the first quarter, and he finished the game 6 for 14 from the field. Now, this was a guy who the first half, Tyrese Maxi took a ton of shots. The second half, 
just three attempts. So all in all, I felt like Wade, this game was a negative for him. Just did not shoot very well, and the vert was much steadier, much more reliable, better at getting guys involved. And Okoro, while his stat line was nothing to write home about in terms of the overall numbers on the game, I will say one thing. A lot of people have talked about how he's gotten stronger, and he's even more physical now, and I think that showed itself on his ability to go after the rebounds more. He came away with five rebounds in just 20 minutes of action, so... It is nice to have that luxury of, I think, over the course of a lot of the last season, my feelings on Okoro, as, and this is not unique, everybody shared these sentiments, but when he came in here, a lot of the thought was he was going to be the three, but he felt a lot more comfortable guarding the twos. I still feel like that is probably going to be the way that it goes, but if his added strength and aggressiveness can allow him to fill some minutes when we get into situations where we want to run four smalls. Because tonight, with no Mobley and no love, we started Wade and Levert. But I would have loved to see just a period of time where Levert effectively slotted in as your power forward, and we got a four-wing lineup of Mitchell and Garland and Okoro and Levert. Uh, But that didn't happen much. However... I, in these first two games, I mean, it is obvious Isaac is comfortable being physical, comfortable initiating contact, and maybe I'm just exaggerating because we played such a small team in Philadelphia that Okoro seemed notably better on the rebounds and coming back to crash the glass, but maybe that's a wrinkle that he's added to his game or, or that he'll get better at because he's never really been a stat sheet stuffer per se, but for a guy who's as physically intimidating and athletically intimidating as Okoro has the potential to be, I would love him to be more of a presence on the glass because we lost a lot when we lost Markin in there. So as far as the other guys, Neto, another solid game, five assists, five points. He's not going to blow you away on box scores, but when you watch him, he's just a smart player who understands pace, who understands taking what the defense gives you. And over the course of these two games, I think in large part, it's his play that has made me feel comfortable with Kite being the guy who gets the last two-way spot. Now, there were different people in contention, be it RJ Nemhard or Isaiah Mobley, but if you're going to look at tonight, Clearly, Mobley is a guy who the Cavs felt comfortable putting in the rotation ahead of Stevens, so he may become a nepotism priority. I don't think he's ready, but I think he got a significant amount of minutes to the detriment of Lamar Stevens and Osman, and maybe I'm I'm overanalyzing that. Maybe the Cavs know what they have and the veteran Osman, and they're comfortable that Stevens can get up to speed and he doesn't need as long of a look is a guy like Mobley, but if you walk away from this game, I would say a couple things. The first is I'm very comfortable with Neto holding down the backup point guard role, and I think we have a lot of depth in the backcourt of guys who you want to get minutes. Osman and Stevens, as it stands now, are going to be fighting for their rotation life, so I don't think we need a guy like Nemhard or even Cooper, who didn't even play tonight after a game in that first game where he had some highlight buckets. Now, he's basically an offensive player. Perhaps that's not really what the coaching staff was looking for out of him, but I feel like 
Diakite is the guy that I would rather hold on to. And part of that is probably because I don't think he plays the same way as Lopez. I think he's a lot more mobile. I think he's a lot more switchable. I do like his aggressiveness in chasing blocks. And I, I just think that he's a guy who consistently finds himself in the right place and making the right rotations and the right decisions. Now, perhaps when he's facing your everyday starters in the NBA, he'll be exposed more because he's not as big as a Lopez or an Allen. But I like the change of pace that he provides in a way that that's the type of guy that you were sort of told Mobley would be because while he doesn't have the physical profile of his brother, maybe he's a little smaller, but he's very intelligent. And that's what I'm feeling like I'm seeing out of Diakite. Now, he certainly is not pulling up and taking shots from range, but he made some plays tonight where he hustled to create second opportunities or he found the guy out on the the three-point perimeter off the rebound. He's aware of what's going on out there, and he's made some smart plays in the early part of this preseason. Now, there's still two games to play, so it's not as if we won't have a chance to see other things, and this is very game-to-game. With such a small sample, it's easy to overreact, but I've liked what I've seen out of Diakite in these first two games. I like what I've seen out of Neto. I thought we had one pretty solid game from Wade. I thought he took a bit of a step back tonight. I don't think his defense did, but he's going to have to be more efficient offensively to really step ahead of some of these other guys in the mix because Levert has been patient. His pacing's been good. He's been looking to find guys. He still seems like a capable scorer at moments. There was a moment tonight where he he had a guy on his heels. He put his shoulder into him. He went to the rim, and he knew. He knew, okay, this is a time when I press. These are times where I kick it out. So I think Levert clearly made some separation here. I don't know that Okoro is really in competition with him in a traditional way for the small forward role, but I do think he did himself a favor tonight in ensuring that he's in the rotation as one of the first guys off the bench for those two, three minutes, which he probably was anyway, but he was very solid. He's very aggressive defensively, and I think it went a long way, and the momentum definitely shifted in that second half. Now, the Cavs didn't win, but there was a stretch where they got it down to single digits, and it looked like, okay, the defense is leading to offense, the offense is free-flowing, and we're starting to shake off a lot of the rust that plagued Donovan Mitchell in the first half. Darius Garland, of course, as is the case with him oftentimes, came out after a very quiet first half, and in the second half, he chipped in eight points, he had a few buckets, so he finished the game with a respectable line, and at the end of the day, if you were to look at the box score, you'd say, okay, Garland gave you 17, Jared Allen gave you 19 and 12, Mitchell wasn't terrible, 11 points, 5 rebounds, but anybody that watched this game had to feel pretty bad about first half Mitchell, and I tweeted something to that effect of like, you know, the Colin Sexton stands just got a full rod right now because... This is exactly what they were hoping for, a game where Mitchell wasn't particularly efficient and turned the ball over a lot. And that's going to happen in preseason. I'm not overreacting to one game, just like I didn't overreact last game to Jared Allen. But what you want to see, see the problem with this, I've just felt like if I can come away from preseason with a good feeling about, okay, what is our top eight or nine man rotation? And if someone at the small forward position separated themselves, then I would feel much better. Because if you have four options to start, you don't have any options. 
what I wanted to see was somebody clearly separate themselves, which in general takes two things, which is performance and consistency. Because it's not like we haven't had guys who've had big games. I mean, Lamar Stevens has had some great games. Isaac Okoro has strung together some reasonably decent stretches where he'll, over three games, over four games, over even six games where he's knocking down a handful of threes and is consistently getting around that double-digit threshold, which is what you want out of a fifth starter who's not really known for offense. You want elite defense, and you just want him to contribute enough to keep people honest. But if we get what we got out of Levert throughout the course of the season, if he can give you 13-4-4 four, and four roughly, even though... He didn't quite get there tonight, but I was hoping that he would come away with a some sort of balance between scoring and distributing. And while the stats may not reflect it because we were objectively horrible shooting from distance, it wasn't for lack of being set up and getting decent looks because Levert was very good in that capacity. So I don't know what the rest of the preseason holds for R.J. Nemhard, Lamar Stevens, Osman, those are all guys who feel like they're on the back end of this rotation. Lopez is probably fine. But I will say, based on this very small two-game sample, I like Diakite better. I like the change of pace because we have some traditionally huge big men when Mobley gets healthy and with Allen there. To have a guy like Diakite as opposed to Lopez, if you want to go with more of a, a mobile runner big versus the big plotting guy with the awkward from the hip hook shot well you got both so I guess that's good but the Neto signing looking very solid at this point and Mitchell it's still I mean game one looked very good game two not very good Dean Wade probably regressed a little but still plenty of time to turn it around so still two more preseason games to go the next one being on Wednesday just two days away I'm doing this on Monday night you may hear it on Tuesday but we'll get a chance to see the Atlanta Hawks a team which we butted up against in the play-in last year and then of course we close the preseason with one of the teams expected to be amongst the worst in the NBA that being the Orlando Magic but perhaps one of the best rookies that we'll see this year and and Paolo Banchero so and then The regular season kicks off a week from Wednesday, October 19th, against the Toronto Raptors. Fingers crossed, knocking on wood, Evan Mobley will be back and we'll get to see a showdown between the slighted Rookie of the Year and the guy who won the award. The deserving Rookie of the Year and the guy who won the award. So that will be just a week away. We got a couple more chances, though. We've had our run against the 76ers. Now let's see how we do against an elite point guard in Trey Young. And a player who just today, I wanted to touch on this anyway, so good segue, saw a trade rumor today involving one of my least favorite players, Jay Crowder, and the Atlanta Hawks. Sham Sharania implied that they are interested and have acquired about obtaining the services of one Jay Crowder. And the rumored player, based on John Hollinger's tweet, was... Well, DeAndre Hunter makes the same money and would fit into that trade. Just saying. Now, that's not really substantiating some sort of these guys are being discussed amongst each other. But the money does work. They do. They are pretty deep in the front court with Collins and Jalen Johnson and him. And so perhaps this is a scenario where they would move him. I have to say, I don't put any credence in that. I don't see it happening for a couple of reasons. One, Hunter is under rookie control. You can keep him, you can let him go, you could trade him, sign and trade style, Lowry Markinen style. 
you have a lot of options, but really on top of that, the bigger issue is that DeAndre Hunter is just a better player than Jay Crowder, in my opinion, especially at this point in his career. I understand Jay Crowder's a try-hard, he'll defend as hard as possible, and if he gets beat, he'll foul, and then people will praise him for being a glue guy, but quite frankly... That's a team that could go multiple ways. I don't think you need to bring in a veteran like that. That's my personal feeling. I know a lot of people feel the exact opposite, but there is no world in which I would trade DeAndre Hunter. Some of the other more asinine suggestions I saw for Jay Crowder were players the likes of Dylan Brooks, Jordan Clarkson, and our very own Karis LeVert. Now that one was the most offensive of all to me, probably because it's too close to home. But... Karis LeVert makes too much money to trade straight up for Jay Crowder. Jay Crowder closer to $10 million, LeVert closer to $18, $19 million. So then they'd have to add in a player, and the suggestions were, well, they'll probably have to give up a Coro too. In no world would LeVert go for Crowder straight up. Let me just make that clear. And I think today should have reinforced that if you didn't know that already. But if you were of the mindset that because LeVert has been somewhat inconsistent over the course of the years that he's somehow less valuable than a player who shoots below 40% over the course of his career in the playoffs. Jay Crowder is the worst starter on some very good teams these last few years in Miami and Phoenix. But you need to ask yourself, why would both these teams be so willing to let him go and replace him? In Miami's case with P.J. Tucker last year, and in Phoenix's case, they're just willing to roll out Cam Johnson and send him to the bench So he might have some value as a contributor, but you're not trading anything of value for that guy. He's long in the tooth, he's a bit of a malcontent, and he's pretty inefficient. He's good for six fouls on an elite player and a lot of talking. And if you want a bunch of tweets that are done in all caps, then Jay Crowder's your guy. But otherwise, keep it moving. Cavs should just be focused on letting Levert get comfortable, see what you have. You have five months until trade deadline to see, okay, is this a guy we want to extend? Is this a guy we want to let go in free agency? Should we shop him? You make those decisions at that point, but you've got a long runway and nobody in front of Karis LeVert at this point. He's going to have every opportunity to prove his worth, as opposed to last season when Lowry Markinen was the guy who most people felt they wanted there, a better three-point shooter, better rebounder, proved to be a very solid defender in his own right, just possesses none of the creation abilities of a guy like Karis LeVert. But anyway, that's my thoughts on that little tangent that came up because we're looking ahead to the Hawks Cavaliers. The second thing that has happened this past week outside of the realm of Cavalier fandom, but definitely a guy who's near and dear to many Cavalier fans' hearts, Draymond Green, just hauling off and socking Jordan Poole in the face. And then the video leaking. This was one of those stories. I'm going to play a clip of audio here because this subject has been beaten to death. And I certainly have gone off at Fear the Fro Pod on Twitter about my thoughts on it. But my feelings, I can summarize them pretty easily here. Total lack of accountability. Uh, Take what you want from the punch. Yeah, you should never do it. You should never punch a teammate. The more offensive part of the storyline to me here is that this veteran leader, this guy who should be in the Hall of Fame for providing such intangibles, he's this many years into the league, and he still can't just own up. He has to qualify it. Yeah, sure, he'll say, oh, I need to be better as a leader. I need to take some time for me. But he only did that 
after it went public. And even after that video went public, listen to this answer. Listen on how he both tries to take accountability, but quickly reverts right back to blaming the fact that the video got out there. What did I think of the fact of the video leaking? If I'm being 100% honest, I thought it was bullshit. You know, uh, no, no other video leaks from practice. You know, uh, uh, when we're working on our sets, they don't leak. You know, when we're, um, you know, when, when I'm coaching everyone up, that doesn't leak. You know, so uh, I thought, I thought it was bullshit that the video leaked. Um, and saying that, what did I think of myself in the moment? I watched the video 15 times, maybe more. Um, because when I watch the video, I'm looking at the video, and I'm like, yo, this looks awful. Like, this looks even worse than I thought it was. It's pathetic. No, and then I had to take a step back, too, and realize that this video was actually released this way to look that way, you know? Um, but for whoever leaked the video, <clears throat> it did the same thing to me that it's intended to do to the world. Um, you know, it's an audioless video. Uh, it's a video that cuts to me walking right to him. You know, and so the video serves the purpose that it was supposed to serve. Um, and it had me in the same mind state of like, wow, this is terrible. This is awful. And by the way, it is terrible and it is awful. This is the non-apology apology. Did you hear all the things he suggests uh, somehow make him less culpable? It was the way the video was edited. There's no audio. Now, he did say different things like, it was horrible, it was awful. But when you qualify that with things like, if you heard the audio, it would make punching his teammate full wind-up less egregious. That's the part that takes all of that apology stuff and just throws it out the window for me. You're not sorry. You're sorry that people saw it. But again, we live in this society where everybody wants the video to everything. Everybody wants to judge for themselves. Because just look at what the Warriors' actions were in the aftermath of this. Before the video got released. It was downplayed. Oh, it's an internal team matter. You saw reports from Chris Haynes who was saying, well, he, he basically apologized for Draymond in the tweet. He stood up for him. He said... Draymond was apologetic, but there was a buildup stemming from teammates, not just Draymond, teammates noticing a change in Poole's behavior throughout camp with the guard on the verge of securing a lucrative extension. That's all but saying the guy's been a dickhead because he knows he's about to get the bag, which to me, it's excusing Draymond for punching him in the face, which there's no reason, which that should be the tweet you put out following what happened. I have to assume Haynes didn't actually see the punch or he probably would have reeled that one back in because it just looks like now in hindsight that he was carrying water for Draymond or for the team. And the other thing that's low-key appalling is the way that the Warriors went full force at, well, we're going to investigate and figure out who released this video. They showed none of that aggression. They showed none of that urgency in standing up for Jordan Poole. When push came to shove, you decided to do more to protect the guy who punched me in the face than just do right by me, who clearly should have never been punched in the face. It would tell me where I stood with them. And quite frankly, I think it's the wrong choice for the Warriors. And I say that on both fronts. Just on a pure right for wrong sense, you should stand up for the guy who was the victim here, which was Poole. But even if you want to factor in how sports changes how we justify actions... 
Poole's going to be there longer. Poole is younger. Poole is arguably a better player right now. And I know Draymond has a unique set of skills, which happen to help Clay and Steph. But at this point, he's starting to become a liability. And you know that his skills, which are based on a lot of hustle and aggression, they're going to fall off as he ages. It's just the reality. It's the same thing that happened to the Cavs. They signed Verajao to that extension, and my immediate thought was, what are you doing? He's on the wrong side of 30. This is not the time to pay him early. Every year, he's a ticking time bomb. And Draymond has the added benefit of being a complete lunatic. Verajao just lost his skills. Draymond is losing his mind at times. But I think there's a part of the Warriors who are just so scared by the fact that Draymond has a platform and a microphone and it's way harder to muzzle a guy like that or to keep his message on point with what your message is. So instead, they get deferential. They do what they think will put them in the best graces of Draymond. And in this case, if restricted free agency didn't exist, I think they would have some serious concerns, potentially, as to how Jordan Poole would react to this whole situation. Because while he hasn't said a a single thing, if I'm him, I'm thinking, this is bullshit. I got punched in the face. This video is all out there for everybody to see. And you didn't even stand behind me. He's going to sit out a couple of preseason games, not lose any money, and then I got to come back and work with this guy? I wouldn't be happy. If the implication that somebody took money to release this is true, I would say two things. The first, good for them. What obligation are they under to protect Draymond Green? Draymond Green isn't protecting any random video guy. This outrage only exists because he expects to be treated differently than the common person who, if I deck someone in my workplace, do you think anyone's protecting me? No. You expect that because of the level of entitlement that comes with being a professional athlete and being coddled because of your tremendous skills all these years and all these different levels of basketball. But secondarily to that, the other thing I would say to the people who are outraged that this video got leaked, the video was put out there and people could judge for themselves. And while 90% of the population would probably say, Draymond, that was too much, I still read comments like, well, he shoved him, anything's fair game at that point. So Draymond, you still have supporters, not reasonable, rational supporters, but you'll still have those people who will explain away and apologize away your actions, no matter how egregious they are. There is no, there's nothing you could put in there as that audio that would warrant that type of reaction. You approached him. You initiated the chest-to-chest contact with him. He shoved you to get you away from him, and you wound up and clocked him in the face as hard as you could. There is no way in which it can look better. There is no audio you could add to it in which it would look better. And the fact that you're even suggesting that somebody framed it in a way to make you look as bad as possible, you made yourself look as bad as possible. The action is what people are judging. Nobody gives a shit about words being exchanged between teammates. They never have. There's always been a ton of talking in basketball. And in fact, they glorify guys like Garnett and Kobe when they chirp at opponents or even at teammates and get on them. That part has never been frowned upon by fans. But if you can't tell the difference between hauling off and decking your teammate full force in the face and words being exchanged, then you're missing the point. This is the... Oh, I'm sorry I hit him, but he just made me so mad and he wouldn't stop talking. You're either sorry or you aren't. You either understand that nothing he said warrants that type of reaction, or 
You're just excusing yourself. And that's fine. You can do that. Plenty of athletes do that. We've built up Jordan like he's some deity for punching Steve Kerr in the face. Ultimate competitor. Will to win. Accepts nothing but maximum effort. Will com- make, compete in at everything, even practice with his own teammates. There was a very good possibility that if this video didn't come out, there would be people preaching that narrative for you, Draymond. But unfortunately, what you lost in this video being leaked, and I do understand why you're upset about this point, is you lost the the ability to misrepresent it like you've misrepresented reality throughout your career kinesiology the lebron incident the i i didn't kick anybody in the nuts you've always spun it to suit whatever happened to frame you in the best light and you're just upset that in this specific circumstance the world saw you for what you were in that moment which was wrong out of pocket sports is the only place where we're willing to explain away people's transgressions because they possess such a unique skill that it's not easily replaceable. And Draymond, for as much as I hate him, does a lot of wonderful things on the court. If you were to look at his best assets, they are very unselfish and very helpful to teams. But unfortunately, they come with all his hothead, over-aggression, and that just manifested here into the face of Jordan Poole. Now he has to carry the burden. He has to turn the other cheek and act like the bigger man because Dre's already got out in front of the media and said, you know, I apologize to him and I'm sorry when the ring ceremony comes up, it's going to be awkward for him and I'm going to do everything I can. Jordan Poole can't sit there and be like, nah, I don't forgive that dick. Like it was totally over the line and no matter what he says, I'm not ready to forgive him. He has to do this. He's now being the bad teammate. He needs to get over it for the good of the team, but I wouldn't get over that. I would remember that for the remainder of the time there. And the sad part is, with Jordan Poole, even if somewhere deep down, after getting punched in the face by Draymond Green, even if somewhere he was like, you know what, I don't care about how much money is thrown at me. I'll get it somewhere else just so I don't have to play with this guy. It's more important for me to remove myself from a team who would essentially co-sign what Draymond did, but not even punishing him until the video went public. It is more important for me to be treated with respect by whoever's employing me. He's got no leverage. He can't force his way out. He's a restricted free agent. So essentially, he's just going to sit there and have to take it. And he'll still get his payday, and eventually it'll be put behind him. But there's no world in which that's a good look for Jordan Poole either. Fans are going to ride him about that. People are going to joke about him getting knocked out. The video leaking didn't do him any favors either. Don't get into the weeds about who leaked it. It's irrelevant. You think if something like that happened in a Walmart or a Target, that the people doing the closed circuit TVs wouldn't leak that? Somebody would take a recording of that and show someone. Because it's a wild video. And this idea that there's this cone of silence because you work in a team, let's not talk about appropriate workplace conduct when one precipitated the other. To sit here and say, well, that video never should have leaked. No, but there shouldn't be a video worth five figures to TMZ that only exists because you punched a coworker in the face. Focus on what the real problem is. If anything, if you were truly repentant for your actions, you should be happy that the one silver lining to this whole thing is that some underpaid video coordinator or security guard managed to get a nice fat payday from your gigantic stupid blunder. It's like how Lance Armstrong made Livestrong a bunch of charity money for cancer, despite the fact that he was a cheater. Good things can come from bad things. I can't wait for this season to begin. 
I hope that uh, we, we reach next summer and Draymond Green is cast out upon the open market so that he can come to terms with what his value would be in an environment that exists independent of Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Jordan Poole. I do think we've reached that point in the career where the attitude and the ego have outpaced the talent and we're going to start to see the fall. The diminishment of skills, but not the diminishment of ego, because this Draymond Green podcast and this media presence and this new media nonsense has only inflated it that much more and made him that much more insufferable. I get that not everybody feels that way, but I couldn't have been happier to see this guy talk about standing on it. You got these opinions. When are you going to stand behind it? And then he disappears for half a week after the video gets leaked because he needs to figure out how he's going to spin it. Quite a bit of hypocrisy there, Draymond. So, on to the next game. On to the Hawks. Hopefully on to better results. Hopefully, the addition of Mitchell will prove to be what we needed. And this season, we will roll into the first game against the Raptors and just kick the doors in. I'm Bob Schmidt, lifelong Cavalier fan, voice of Fox Sports Radio. This is the Fear the Fro podcast. Like and subscribe. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.